it dawns on me as we do that, that that is a good practice to do whenever we prepare to read scripture because it centers us in God's presence. And now as we prepare to hear the scriptures this morning, let us pray for the Spirit's illumination. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, blow through this place, we pray. Open our hearts and our minds that we might hear your word for your church gathered here today and equip us to obey in faithful response to it. All this we pray in the name of Christ, the word made flesh. Amen. The New Testament lesson this morning comes from Revelation 22. This is the last chapter of the Bible, and in many ways it it resembles the very beginning of the Bible. It too takes place in a garden. And so as I read it, I invite you to listen to the parallels that you will find in the subsequent text from Genesis. Listen now for God's word to you. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. And the Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Genesis 2, beginning in the second half of verse 4 and going through verse 17. I invite you once again to listen for God's word to you. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, And there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Hivilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria 
and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our text this morning begins in a barren land, a place of lack, void of plants because there's no rain to water them and no human to till the soil. But like a gardener who gathers dirt together around a plant, or like a potter who shapes clay into a pot, God gathers together the dust and breathes into it the breath of life, and it becomes a living being. And everything that follows thereafter follows this pattern of bringing abundance from barrenness and perfect delight to this human being. God plants a garden in Eden and places the human in it among trees that are pleasant to the sight and good for food. Rivers flow forth from Eden to sustain the garden, and the human is tasked with tilling the garden, which must have been as satisfying a task as any because All indications are that this is very fertile soil. If there are any gardeners in our midst this morning, you know that satisfying feeling of a good harvest, right? This setting in the Garden of Eden is popularly known as a place of paradise. And indeed, the root word Eden in Hebrew refers less to a geographical place than to a state of being, one of delight and plenty. The Garden of Eden is literally a place that lacks nothing. And it's here that the human being is placed. All is well. In the midst of this Garden of Plenty, however, there resides a distinctive tree, access to which is denied the human being. That, of course, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This unique tree is first identified in verse 9, and in verse 17, God specifically prohibits the human from partaking of its fruit. You may eat freely of every tree in the garden, God says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Of course, every human being who has read this story since then knows what's going to happen next, right? The human is going to eat from the tree. There's just something about human nature that is enticed by that which is forbidden, right? Curiosity didn't just kill the cat. It gets the best of us, too. Our ability to first imagine and then pursue a reality that's different from the one in which we live sometimes leads to great change and great accomplishment and great success, but often leads us into trouble. That which is forbidden maintains this mysterious allure that we struggle to resist. But our disobedience is yet to come, waiting for us in chapter 3. Here in chapter 2, we're presented with a prior question, and one that is easy to miss because since we know exactly what's going to happen, it's easy to hit the fast-forward button in our minds. 
But the first question that confronts us in chapter 2 is this. Why is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there in the first place? We might expect there to be off-limits trees after the humans have disobeyed, right? Sin has its consequences, after all. The way a television becomes forbidden to a grounded teenager. The way a store becomes forbidden to someone caught stealing from it. The removal of privileges is normal when we do something wrong, but here the human is denied the privilege of this tree before doing anything wrong. And so again, we're prompted to ask, why is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil there in the first place? It may seem like a sort of frivolous question, but actually, this tree bears a great deal of theological significance. It means... It's strange to have a tree from which the human is forbidden from the get-go in this pre-sin paradise, right? I mean, maybe a non-human human could coexist with these trees and be at ease in leaving them alone. But a human human living in the midst of these trees is going to be tempted by them. So why would God put this tree there in the first place? Well, the two trees, the tree of knowledge and the tree of life, seem to bear the fruits of divinity, knowledge, and life. And human beings, who are always plagued by anxiety around what we do not know, and plagued by the shortness of our lifespan, which we always wish we could prolong, would surely be drawn to trees of knowledge and life. Surely these trees bear the fruits of divinity. It seems almost cruel in a way to me that these trees are placed in the garden. I mean, after all, this is supposed to be paradise. Pleasant trees that are good for food are everywhere and water to grow the plants and keep them there. Everything seems to be just right in this land of plenty. Everything seems to be just as the human would want it, except for these trees. Why are they there disturbing the bliss of paradise with the angst of curiosity? Why can't God keep the fruit of divinity to God's self? Why dangle it like a taunt in front of the human being? Well, I think that the tree of knowledge is there to make an important point to the human and to all subsequent humans. And that point is this. We were never meant to have it all. We were never meant to have it all. Some things are supposed to be out of reach. To have it all is to be God. To have certain limits is to be human. Remember, the tree of knowledge is not there as punishment. Its forbidden fruit is not a consequence of bad decisions. It doesn't represent the withdrawal of privileges. No, this tree is a reminder that we're not supposed to have it all. Even in the Bible's picture of a pre-sin paradise, the human being is immediately confronted with a limitation, a boundary that the human should not try to cross. We were simply not meant to have it all. This is a lesson, of course, that we're still learning in 2020. In fact, today's 
globalized world presents us with even more curiosities and forbidden fruits than ever before, doesn't it? The fast-moving currents of technology and the range of our freedoms and possibilities are as wide a garden of delight as human beings have ever known. And yet we still live this same old story. We get ourselves into trouble when we think we can have everything. After all, how often are we driven into the ground by a society that is always telling us that we need more and more and more? We may have more than enough fruit from the abundance of trees around us, but we're told if we only had the fruit from that one tree that remains out of reach, then we would really be happy. If only we had that bigger house or that second home, that higher paying job or that lucrative side hustle, that deeper resume or a wider range of experience, then we'd be happy. Then we would have it all. But you see, this is the voice of deceit that leads us astray. This is the lure of worldly ambition that takes us captive. Stories abound of people leaving their families behind as they devote their best time and energy to, cr- to climbing higher and higher along the ladder of the American dream. Stories abound of people who are never satisfied with their best because there's always someone better at something or more accomplished than they are. Stories abound of people plagued by anxiety only to slip into addiction and self-destruction because the pressure overwhelms. When we long for more and more, we wind up content with less and less. The Italian philosopher Machiavelli once wrote that people desire novelty to such an extent that those who are doing well wish for a change as badly as those who are not doing well. Contentment is fleeting, even for those of us who have been given more than enough. But you see, we were never meant to have it all. Now, ambition doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't have to take us beyond our means. We can and should set out to make the most of what we've been given. And we should commend those whose great efforts enable them to attain enough for themselves, enough to assist and provide for others in their time of need. The problem is not ambition generally, but ambition toward the wrong things. The problem is not hard work. The problem is never not working. The problem is not having enough. The problem is not being grateful for what we do have. Not even the human in a world devoid of sin was given everything. We were never meant to have it all. But to say that we were never meant to have it all is not to say that we shouldn't have anything. The garden in which the human is placed, after all, is no land of scarcity. It's a place of abundance and delight. It has more than enough. And the human is not told to be an ascetic, denying all worldly pleasure. No, the human is told, you can eat from all these trees, just not the fruit of that one tree. A first century Stoic philosopher and contemporary of Christ named Seneca once said that being poor is not having too little, it is wanting more and more. 
And indeed, sometimes our pursuit of the forbidden fruit gives us a distorted view of what it means to have enough. Who among us hasn't at some point mistaken a want for a need? Who among us hasn't felt the allure of something beyond our means, something we don't really need and yet feel this deep desire to possess? Now, not all of us find ourselves in this situation this morning. Certainly there are those among us who really do have substantial needs. I don't mean to paint with too broad a brush here or to suggest that those who are in need aren't really so or could be happy if they simply appreciated what they have. No, poverty is certainly not merely a state of mind. And undoubtedly, the abundance present in the United States is not at all evenly distributed. However, the situation in which we all do in fact find ourselves is the worst pandemic in a century. And no matter how much or how little abundance we have come to possess, what we all do possess right now, today, is an opportunity to do some deep reflection and self-assessment while the world is upside down. It may not seem like it sometimes, but eventually the world is going to go back to normal. And when it does, will we simply pick up where we left off? Will we simply re-enter the rat race and resume our pursuit of having it all? Or will we use this time to make a change? The pandemic has not have it all. It's presented us with an opportunity to re-examine our lives and take stock of what priorities are most important in our lives right now. Priorities that can sometimes lose their order when we get stuck in the shuffle of dissatisfaction as we live our lives. The pandemic has given us the occasion to assess what it is we're actually pursuing, where it is that we are placing our best time and energy. It's given us an unexpected moment in which the old patterns that we might not have even realized we had gotten sucked into have been shattered or put on hold for a time. We have a chance right now to redirect our gaze from the forbidden fruit towards those things that ought to be the highest priorities in our lives. Most of them are often right in front of us. So friends, we were never meant to have it all, but we were meant to have enough. So may we open our eyes to the ways in which God provides for our needs And may we invest our time and energy in the things that really matter. And may we fix our gaze not on the forbidden fruits or the things that will always remain out of reach. But rather, let us fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who has given us himself. Because in the end, having Christ is all we'll ever really need. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.